Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. So as you know, we began an in-depth study of the gospel according to Luke on New Year's Eve and have spent three of the uh, four Sundays in January in chapter one, uh, taking a one-week break along the way for a message uh, given by one of the missionaries that we support. And while Bob originally planned to finish up chapter 1 this week, uh, the unexpected death of his brother-in-law Scott has created an opportunity for us to take a one-week detour into the fourth gospel, the gospel according to John. So why jump into John's gospel this morning? Well, there are actually a couple of reasons, one practical and one that the Holy Spirit seems to have arranged based on what Bob covered in Luke last week. The practical reason has to do with the fact that I have been teaching through John's Gospel at Bible Study Fellowship since last September. And so for practical purposes, in terms of using my time wisely this week, it made sense for me to teach from John this morning as I fill in for Bob. As a result, I will be teaching this morning on a portion of John 13 that we just covered at BSF last Monday. However, however, given what the first 17 verses of John 13 cover... It's also a very timely passage to look at in light of what we've learned about Mary's heart in Luke chapter 1, especially through her song in verses 46 through 55 that we covered last week. For Mary clearly had a servant's heart and is therefore a wonderful model of the selfless servant that Jesus teaches about in this first section of John 13. And therefore, it is my hope that this morning's message will be helpful to us in following Mary's example to selflessly serve the Lord in whatever way he calls us to. Now, perhaps at no other time like uh, the present in history, this world increasingly encourages people to promote and serve themselves, especially here in the United States. And if they must accomplish that by ignoring the needs of others, or even taking advantage of others, then so be it. But Jesus calls his followers to die to themselves by living lives of selfless servanthood. And when we do that effectively, we can have a major impact on the world because it builds unity in the body of Christ and it helps draw non-believers to Jesus. So this morning, we will be considering the topic of selfless servanthood by looking at an event in John 13 that launched the final 18 hours or so of Jesus' earthly ministry just prior to his crucifixion. This event, Jesus' foot washing of his disciples, was only recorded in John's account. And we should be grateful that the Holy Spirit led John to do so because there is much we can learn from it and also apply to our walks as followers of Christ today. In addition, we'll also be looking at John's portrayal of Judas's betrayal because I think it provides not only an excellent contrast to Jesus' call to selfless servanthood, but it also demonstrates the fact that our efforts to serve others will not always go smoothly or end well. So let's pray, and then we'll see what God has to say to us in terms of secrets to selfless servanthood this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to open your word once again. Uh, Lord, thank you again for the opportunity to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Lord, and now as we open John 13, Lord, I just pray that you would speak to each of us uh, individually and personally, Lord, revealing to us how we can better apply, Lord, what we just sang about 
to be more like Jesus, and especially in the area of selfless servanthood. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So let me start with a question this morning. What's on your bucket list? What's on your bucket list? You know, that has become a common icebreaker question in recent years. As I imagine most of you know, a bucket list is a list of once-in-a-lifetime experiences that one wants to fulfill before they die or kick the bucket. And the nature of these lists is often such that they do not get much consideration or pursuit until later in life. Now, as I recall, it was about five years before I stopped working for a paycheck that I heard a message on the radio by a well-known Christian pastor during one of my daily commutes. And one of the things that he shared in that message had a profound impact on my life. You know, I had already understood that the concept of retirement, as the world defines it, is not a biblical concept. In other words, followers of Christ do not retire in the sense of kicking back and enjoying our sunset years by pursuing all the things we never had time to do earlier in our lives. Yes, we might stop working for a paycheck, but we don't stop working. But what this pastor did in that message was provide an alternative to vocational retirement that really helped me to think differently about it. He said that we don't retire, we get redeployed. We get redeployed in the Lord's service. And given that my typical work week plus commute time totaled at least 50 hours at that time, it dawned on me just how awesome redeployment could be, as it would free up a substantial amount of time for me to serve the Lord and others in ways I could never do while working as an engineer. As a result, I started reevaluating what my future would look like and decided that there would be no bucket list for Chuck other than the one that God had established for me long before he knit me together in my mother's womb, as Psalm 139.16 declares. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And therefore, I would do my best to patiently wait on God to reveal his plans for Karen and me as he continued to hone us into Christ-likeness. Now, my intention in sharing this is not to draw attention to myself or my specific situation, for I can assure you that I struggle, just like most of you do, with knowing God's will and sticking to his agenda on a daily basis. Nor do I share it to devalue vocational work in any way, or the daily opportunities it provides to allow us to engage with the lost. Opportunities that I did not always take advantage of like I could have or should have. Rather, I share this because I believe it has an important connection to what Jesus teaches in John 13, especially in the first 17 verses. For the whole concept and pursuit of personal bucket lists is in many ways contrary to Jesus' teaching primarily because of the self-centered approach that many people employ in structuring the latter portion of their physical life around their own bucket lists rather than God's bucket list for them. Sadly, this includes far too many that claim to be Christians in our day. As I noted a few minutes ago, people today are increasingly adopting a worldly mindset that encourages them to, to elevate and serve themselves rather than others. And sadly, the church is not immune from this, as it seems that one of Satan's ploys is to, is to infiltrate the church with worldly thinking and practices. 
But again, as I stated earlier, Jesus calls his followers to live their lives in an entirely different, even countercultural way. One that is grounded in a willingness to die to self and, per- and pursue the selfless servanthood of others in his name. A call that extends from the first moments of our salvation until whatever point in time he calls us to our true home in heaven. And when we take up that call by humbly and sacrificially serving others in his name, we reflect his character to both those we serve as well as others that may be watching. Now, before we get into the text of John 13, it might be helpful to give you a quick orientation to where this chapter fits within the bigger scope of John's gospel account. So here's a relatively basic outline of John's gospel. This is also on today's sermon note sheets. As you can see on this chart at the, four, at the far right, the simplest way to divide the book is into two main sections or divisions that roughly divide the book in half. The first major division of the book is often referred to as the book of signs because of its focus on seven special signs by Jesus that John documented for us in the first 12 chapters. The first sign being the turning of water into wine at the wedding in Cana in chapter 2, and the final sign being the resurrection of Lazarus in chapter 11. And the purpose of those signs was to reveal Jesus to the world as both God and God's Messiah. Then the other major division is often called the Book of Glory, as nearly all of it focuses on the roughly 72-hour period of time that surrounded Jesus' glorification through his death and resurrection. Now, the Book of Glory portion has three main subsections to it, as you can see up there on the screen, labeled 3, 4, and 5. And in those, um, the first one is chapters 13 through 17, and in that, Jesus will more fully reveal himself to his own, meaning his 12 and soon-to-be 11 core disciples. But then Jesus' own also includes all who have subsequently followed him by faith during the subsequent two millennia since his ascension back to heaven. And the first subsection of the Book of Glory is often referred to as Jesus' upper room discourse, since the majority of it is teaching by Jesus that took place in the so-called upper room per Luke 22.12, the place where they had celebrated the start of Passover through a special meal that we often refer to as the Last Supper. Even today, many Jews, as well as some Christians, celebrate this meal in what is known as a Passover Seder, something we've done a couple of times here at Family Bible Church, including last April. However, in terms of chronology and the original Passover instructions of Exodus 12, many people wonder why the Gospels have this Passover meal being celebrated at the start of Passover rather than at the end after the lambs were killed at twilight. The reason is that by the time of Jesus, that had become common practice, with one special lamb sacrificed for the nation at twilight or about 3 p.m. on Passover day the exact time that Jesus declared, it is finished on the cross. By the way, it's important for us to remember, as we've talked about some in Sunday school uh, a couple weeks ago, the Jewish day begins at sundown, not midnight, and twilight is generally considered to be the time period between 3 and 6 p.m., and not just after sunset, as we normally think of twilight. 
As a result, Jesus' final meal with his disciples and his crucifixion actually took place on the same day, the day of Passover. Now, as many of you know, John's gospel account is also very different in content from the synoptic accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In fact, about 90% of its content is unique and not found in those other accounts. And one feature of that uniqueness is the inclusion of this upper room discourse that begins in chapter 13, where John allows us to listen in on Jesus' important teaching during this final meal with his closest followers, something we see only bits and pieces of in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John will devote five full chapters to it, whereas the other three use less than one chapter to cover it. So with that bit of background behind us, let's consider serving the Jesus way, beginning with verses 1 through 5 of John 13. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, or other translations say during supper, The devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now, there's a lot to look at here, beginning with the fact that this was taking place at Passover. Passover being the annual Jewish commemoration of God's protection of his people during his tenth and final plague against Egypt, the details of which we can read about in Exodus chapters 11 and 12. This was the plague that resulted in the death of all the firstborn in Egypt that did not take cover under the protection of the Lamb's blood, and that included both mankind and beast. And it immediately led to the exodus of the Jews from Egypt after 400 years of slavery. Therefore, in terms of its significance and importance, it is in many ways the Old Testament equivalent of the cross, as Jesus died on Passover. And there is so much symbolism linking these two events together, not the least of which was John the baptizer's declaration of Jesus, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, since Jesus would become the final Passover sacrifice. Okay, moving on, but still there in verse 1, we see that Jesus knew that his hour had come that he should depart from this world to the Father. This hour is not a literal hour of time, but it's code language by John that points to the redemption and salvation Jesus would accomplish through his death and resurrection. In fact, from John's perspective, the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus are intimately linked as a single continuous event. In addition, this term, the hour, is used throughout John's account to remind us that there is a heavenly timetable in play as Jesus did his Father's will. And as we see here, Jesus was completely in tune with that timetable. Then next, John mentions something very important when he says at the end of verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This mention of love by John would have been important to his readers 
since they needed to understand that Jesus' pending departure was an act of love toward his disciples, not his abandonment of them. It was an act of love, not abandonment. As Jesus will declare later in this same discourse in John 16, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. In addition, John wants us to understand that the full extent of Jesus' love is demonstrated at the cross, not through his humble service of foot washing that was about to take place. Because the foot washing, as we will see shortly, had a dual purpose. For Jesus used it to both teach us about selfless service, as well as show us symbolically what his death would accomplish for us by washing away our sins. And it was therefore meant to instruct his followers regarding how we are to love one another, both through acts of humble service and through authentic forgiveness when we transgress against one another. In addition, the words he loved them to the end connects us to John 19.30, where we read, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. That is the end from God's perspective and is for all practical purposes the point at which Jesus is glorified and returns to his Father. Then, when we bring in verses 2 and 3, we see two other things that Jesus knew. He knew his enemy was actively at work, and he knew that he was of divine origin and authority. And the fact that he was of divine origin and authority makes what happens next so surprising and quite shocking to his disciples. For Jesus demonstrated that that love that John mentions through a tangible act of service, as we see in verses 4 and 5. And not just any act of service, but by performing the lowest and most degrading act of servitude known in that first century culture. It is my understanding that even Jewish slaves did not wash their master's feet. Rather, it was a task that only a Gentile slave would do if it was done by another person at all. And the shock of what Jesus did here becomes even more evident through Jesus' interactions with Peter when it is his turn to have his feet washed. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. When Peter asks here, Lord, are you washing my feet? He is not asking, is it my turn now? Rather, that is a rhetorical question to which Peter is saying to Jesus, you should not be washing my feet. I should be washing yours. But note that Peter, or any of the others for that matter, doesn't reach for the bowl and towel to take Jesus' place. Jesus then uses Peter's objection to transition this act on his part from one of humble service to one that symbolizes the fact that salvation through him involves spiritual cleansing. 
by telling them what I am doing you, what, by what I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Jesus is communicating the fact that we cannot achieve our salvation on our own and cannot wash away our own sin. Only he can do that for us. Well, good old Peter then goes from one extreme to the other, as he was prone to do on several other occasions that you may recall in Scripture. And Jesus uses his reaction to explain the two different types of spiritual cleansing that believers need. And this is the application of this passage that is often overlooked. First is our one-time justification that takes place when we are saved, as represented by being bathed there in verse 10. This is why Jesus states in verse 8, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. This bathing is what Paul refers to as the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit in Titus 3.5. The washing of the feet then represents the fact that even after salvation, we will have encounters with sin that need to be dealt with through the routine washing of repentance. This includes both our own personal sin as well as the impacts and influences that sin imparts upon us as we live our lives in a fallen world. This is the vital part of our ongoing sanctification. In fact, daily repentance from sin is a prerequisite in my mind if our sanctification is to progress at its most effective pace. As the Holy Spirit makes us aware of sin, we are called to welcome his conviction and then respond through confession as we seek God's forgiveness. And the Holy Spirit not only reveals our sin, he also gives us the power to turn from that sin and enjoy forgiveness as we grow in Christ. Then after Jesus finishes washing all their feet, including the feet of Judas, he returns to his place and tells them that they need to follow his example, not literally, of course, but by serving others in his name. Jesus understood that there was a competitive spirit in the hearts of his disciples that would not serve them well in the future after he departed. So he gave them an unforgettable lesson in humility while rebuking their selfishness and pride in the process. Of course, it will take some time for this lesson to sink in. For as we see in Luke 22, they had a dispute shortly after this about who was the greatest among them. And take note there in verses 13 and 14 that Jesus never relinquished his position of authority through this humble act of servitude. He was still their teacher and their Lord. He simply set his authority and rights aside to show them and to show us a better way. A way that brings blessing, as he states there in verse 17, for it's not enough to know what we should do if we never do it. Rather, we must be living examples of all that we've been taught. And through Jesus' actions here, one of our key learnings should be that the Christian life is never about power, position, or prestige, but humble, selfless service of others. The Christian life is never about power, position, or prestige, but humble, selfless service of others. As the logo of our 2020 Camp T-shirt stated, self plus less equals others. Self plus less equals others. A mindset that is drawn from Philippians 2, 3, and 4, where we read, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in loneliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. 
let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Of course, this mindset is not something that comes naturally to us. And it's therefore one of those areas that God works especially hard on during our ongoing sanctification in order to make us more and more like Jesus, who, as we are also told in Philippians 2, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Sanctification represents God's gracious blessing to believers on their path to heaven's glory, and it scrapes away the residue of our old nature so that we can increasingly reflect Christ to the world. It sets us apart to live for him rather than living for sin and self. And through this process and by the Holy Spirit's power, believers are drawn to pray, to feed on God's word, and thrive through fellowship with other believers. However, while all of those are wonderful aspects of sanctification, the aspect that Jesus wanted us to become especially aware of in this first section of John 13 is the aspect of selfless servanthood, an intentional activity through which we set aside our pride and humbly stoop to serve, as Jesus modeled for us when he washed his disciples' filthy feet. And by following Jesus' example, we reflect his character and we'll find that over time, serving God and others becomes not a duty, but a delight and a privilege. In addition, we must not view the sanctification process like we view minor maintenance on our vehicles, like an oil change or tire rotation. Rather, we must view it like a complete and mandatory overhaul as God transforms us into the image and likeness of his son. And Christ's example reminds us that while sanctification can be painful at times, it is always profitable for the believer, as we recognize that pruning inevitably produces greater fruitfulness and therefore greater joy in the life of the believer. So in light of what Jesus demonstrated and taught in this first portion of John 13, how has pride, or perhaps self-perceived inadequacy, kept you from saying yes to some task, service, or calling. Remember, Jesus doesn't often call the already equipped. Rather, he equips the called so that we will be dependent on him and not ourselves. Or is there something else that is hindering you from following Jesus' example of selflessly serving others? I can personally attest to the fact that Jesus has this amazing way of stretching our time and our other resources when we say yes to him. And as longtime BSF director of training, Jane Roach, often said, the excuses we make in life often keep us from seeing the wonderful things our big God is willing and able to do. Now, perhaps you are just waiting for an opportunity to serve and wondering how to get started. Well, if that is the case, let me share this list that BSF recently gave its class members on ways we can wash the feet of others. So first, we can show genuine love for others in practical ways. And again, there'll be a scripture reference. We're not gonna read through these scriptures, but I encourage you to jot them down if any of these items uh, strike you. 
Next, defer to one another in humility, as we saw in Philippians 2. Uh, forgive one another. Uh, we talked about this during the communion devotional, Jose did, and of course forgiveness is something that's really critical uh, aspect of washing the feet of others. We can strengthen one another to overcome sin and bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6, 1 through 3. And you know, that applies not only to ourselves personally, but when we know other people that are actively serving in a difficult situation or a challenging situation, you know, we can come aside, alongside them and help strengthen them to persevere in the midst of that. We can consider the needs of others and do what leads to peace and mutual edification. We can pray for one another. That one is huge. James 5, 13 and 14. And lastly, we can encourage one another to live for Christ. Hebrews 10. Now, admittedly, those are somewhat generic, but they are great ways to adjust your mindset toward being more others-focused. And if the Holy Spirit seemed to nudge you on one or two of them as I read them off, I encourage you to jot down those scripture references and then pray about ways you can specifically begin applying them. The bottom line is that Jesus has shown us how to love and serve the Jesus way. So how will you follow his example this week? Now, as we move into the next section of our passage in John 13, you can see that I've entitled it Persevering in Service. Persevering in Service. And that may seem like an odd title, given that the primary topic of verses 18 to 30 is Judas's betrayal. So I promise to explain that in a bit, but before I get to that, there are a number of other things to look at regarding this betrayal and the interaction between Jesus and his betrayer in this section of John 13. For I think this will help us better understand the connection between this betrayal and our call to persevere in selfless servanthood. Let me begin by talking about Jesus' announcement of the shocking news that there was a betrayer in their midst in verses 18 through 21. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. So first, this was not breaking news, or at least it shouldn't have been. In fact, about a year earlier, Jesus had indicated that this was on the horizon in John 6:64. When he told his disciples, but there are some of you who do not believe. And John explained that comment by adding, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. However, when, however, when thinking about Judas and what he did, I think it is really essential to recognize that Judas had a choice. And he was ultimately responsible for his decisions and actions. Though Jesus knew what Judas would do, he did not compel him to do it. In fact, Judas was exposed to the same spiritual privileges as the other disciples. He simply listened to the wrong voice and chose the wrong path because he did not believe. And because he did not believe, 
he also did not have the protection afforded by a shield of faith, for it would have allowed him to fend off the fiery darts of the wicked one, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 6.16. Now, before announcing the news itself, Jesus also states how it will be a fulfillment of prophecy based on Psalm 41.9, which reads, Even my own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, <coughs> excuse me, has lifted up his heel or acted as a traitor against me. Like many prophecies in God's word, this one had an immediate or near-term context or fulfillment, as well as a longer-term fulfillment. In this case, Bible scholars generally agree that David was referring to his counselor Ahithophel, who turned traitor and joined Absalom's rebellion against his father. While the Holy Spirit also inspired David's pen to speak of the future relationship between Jesus and Judas. And fulfilled prophecy provides tremendous confidence in God and his word. This was true for his disciples then, just as it is true for us today. That's why Jesus says there in verse 19, Now I tell you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Take note, of course, that the he there at the end of verse 19 is in italics in the New King James. That indicates that that word is not there in the Greek. So what Jesus declares there is actually, now I tell you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am. That's ego and me in the Greek. And Pastor Bob's talked to us a lot about that over the years. It's a clear and distinct declaration by Jesus of his deity as he invokes God's memorial name from Exodus 3.14. In fact, the NIV translates verse 19 this way. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. The truth that Jesus is God is important when it comes to his call for us to be selfless servants, because he has the authority to make that call, as well as the power and ability to help us fulfill it. In addition, by tying Jesus' betrayal to God's word, Jesus was seeking to ensure that it would strengthen rather than weaken the faith of the other disciples. Then, after Jesus declares the news, the disciples stare at one another in disbelief, totally perplexed, and at a loss to know which of them he meant. And when Peter prompts John, otherwise known in John's account as the disciple whom Jesus loved, to ask Jesus for the betrayer's identity, Jesus replies to him in verse 26, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. It is believed that this occurred at the point in the Passover meal where a special sop is given by the leader to an honored guest as a token of love and forgiveness, but also warning. A sop being made by dipping a piece of unleavened bread with lamb in a mixture of bitter herbs. In the context of Passover, it symbolized going from bondage to freedom by him who has redeemed us. Jesus knew what was coming. So when he handed that sop to Judas, he was saying in effect, you don't need to do what you are planning to do. You can be freed from the bondage of sin. Sadly, Judas rejected this final act of grace by Jesus. Now the text makes it clear that no one suspected Judas 
and he would have been sent on his way by Jesus before John could react or share what Jesus told him. And where it says there in verse 27 that now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him, we need to handle the interpretation of that with a certain degree of caution, for it is not entirely clear what entered him means. In fact, Luke's account mentioned that something similar had previously taken place before the Last Supper. What is clear from this, as well as from John 13 too, is that Satan himself was behind the demonic plot to kill Jesus. So for our part, we need to be on guard that we are not allowing Satan's whispered lies to distract us from full devotion to Jesus, including our service to others in his name. As for Satan, he was playing right into God's hand and God's plan. Hence, Jesus' final words to Judas, what you do, do quickly. These words were probably intended to encourage Judas to follow through on what he planned to do, now that he had rejected Jesus' final offer of grace. Some have even suggested that Jesus was speaking as much to Satan there as he was to Judas. Either way, I see those words as yet one more reminder that there was a redemptive timetable to be kept, a timetable that Judas had now linked himself to and that required his timely cooperation. Now, regarding the explanation of my title for this section, Persevering in Service, I chose it as a reflection of the fact that there will be things we encounter when we serve others that will not always be pleasant and may, in fact, be downright hard. Our efforts may not be recognized or appreciated, or they may get rejected. We may even experience outright betrayal, as both King David and Jesus did. In those times, it is helpful to think about Judas, and especially how Jesus reached out to him to the very end. We must continue to persevere in selfless service, remembering that we are ultimately serving our Lord. And therefore, Jesus' call to to serve others should never be contingent on how that service is received or valued. Many years ago, Karen and I took a basic counseling class that was offered by the church we were attending at the time. And one of the concepts they stressed was that some people that we serve or disciple will require us to display an extra measure of grace in our interactions with them, perhaps because of their background or their present hard circumstances. As a result, we will likely need to invest some extra time in ministering to them, and ask the Lord to give us an extra measure of patience and wisdom as we disciple them. And as Jesus did with Judas, we need to be willing to go the extra mile, persevering in our service to those he calls us to serve, recognizing that in the end, the results of our efforts are up to God and not up to us. We just need to be faithful on our end. Some people will receive and appreciate our acts of service, while others will not. Some may even reject and condemn them, making us feel rejected and even betrayed. But regardless of the reaction or response we get, or non-reaction or non-reaction or non-response for that matter, we need to keep on serving others in Jesus' name. And we need to do it with grace and humility, with no expectation for appreciation or payback, trusting that God sees and knows all and will bless us accordingly for following Jesus' example. 
The extreme contrast in this week's passage between Jesus' example of humble submission to his father alongside Judas's self-centered betrayal stands as a bold example, but also a strong warning. For Judas sought his own course, rejected God's light, and chose Satan's darkness. And the outcome of that path will never be good. While Jesus submissively followed his father's will by humbly serving others and then laying down his very life to make salvation available to all. As his followers, we too are called to live lives of humble servitude, seeking to put the needs of others before our own. There is no higher calling nor greater blessing. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So as I close, let me return to a couple of questions that I asked earlier. How has pride, or perhaps self-perceived inadequacy, kept you from saying yes to some task, service, or calling? Is something else hindering you? Is something else hindering you from following Jesus' example of selflessly serving others? Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal this to you, and then ask him to help you overcome it. And then Jesus has shown us how to love and serve the Jesus way. How will you follow his example? And then finally, as we ask every time, every week at this time, is there a need to change the way you think and therefore change the way you act? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you and praise you, Lord, for Lord, the many ways in which you teach and train us, Lord, to be selfless servants. It's a hard calling, um, and yet uh, the Lord did the most uh, humble of all tasks uh, and most humiliating of all tasks to show us um, how we are to serve others. So, Lord, as we apply these truths to our lives, Lord, uh, just give us the strength through your Holy Spirit to do it well, to do it with excellence, but always to do it with an eye towards glorifying you, knowing, Lord, that you are the one that calls us to this, and you are the one that will ultimately reward us for it. And that you will use it in many ways to draw others to yourself so that they too can experience the Jesus way. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.